Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. Hello and welcome back to This Believe Land is Your Land, which I'm only going to have to say maybe two to three more times. Um, I'm joined here in the studio with my boy, Mike Krupka. Very excited to be here on a breezy fall-like Sunday. Wow. It's breezy over there too, huh? Because it is blowing over here. It's got like 20 to 35 mile per hour trade winds. And um, I also hope, Josh, that we only have to say this one more time, not two or three. (laughs) So what Mike and I are alluding to here is that for as wonderful of a run as it has been with SB Nation, and we're grateful for all the folks over there, this podcast, as we've been hinting for the better part of six months, is in the process of moving. And we will... Uh, get all seven of you the details on what that's going to look like when we are adjusted. We are fully set up in our new digs, but it's going to be great. There's going to be new names and new logos and new guests and new everything. It's going to be it's going to be great. And I, I I don't mean to speak for Mike here, but I know I am incredibly excited about the change. Absolutely, man. Looking forward to it. I think we've kind of found our stride as a, as a group and as a team and we're having fun and I think people are, are enjoying what we're doing. So we're, we're looking forward to spreading our wings a little bit more this season along with the Browns. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of perfect that as the Browns stop being trash, we stop being trash. <laughs> I didn't think that went through before I started talking. No, it, it's, it's a great time to, to start on this new journey as, as we get used to, uh, a Browns team that is taking the world by storm. This podcast is going to take the world by storm. Indeed. So, Speaking uh, of taking the world by storm, I think we wanted to to kick things off with a, a certain storm that rolled through yesterday. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know where you were um, when the news came down, but I was in the middle of watching a movie and one of my buddies texted me and said, Andrew Luck just retired. And I quick, like I did a quick, Google search on Andrew Luck and nothing. There was nothing right. there. And I was like, this is probably a scam. It sounds like every other football related scam that we've heard of for the last decade. And then I checked Twitter and it was like, oh, Schefter has this. Right. And I rechecked Schefter's profile about 17 different times and went specifically to his profile so that I could make sure that it was originating at the account that it should have. Like maybe, right. yeah. And you know, um, I don't know if it was Greg Rosenthal or. Bill Barnwell, it was one of the uh, sports writers that I really respect, said that we have not seen an athlete in his prime retire suddenly like this since Michael Jordan. And the parallel, he said, look, we, we saw Calvin Johnson retire around this age. We saw Barry Sanders step away from the game while he was still killing it. But in football, nobody has an impact like a franchise quarterback does. And make no bones about it, Andrew Luck was a top seven quarterback who was 29 years old and was going to own this league along with, you know, Patrick Mahomes and hopefully Baker Mayfield in two or three years. When all of these guys retire, we, we are chock full as a league of old dudes. Like the entire NFL smells like Ben Gay 
And Andrew Luck was one of the very few young, bright stars that we knew were going to be around for another uh, decade or so. So I, I, it completely blew me back. It, I don't want to say it ruined my evening, but I was thrown for such a loop with it that like I couldn't just absorb it and move on. It, it, it completely blew me away. Walk me through how you absorb that information. I'm not saying this to rub it in, but yesterday we had a, like an excursion day to the beach uh, out on the west out on the out on the west side, and so just bear with me here. So all morning, I mean, I'm packing firewood, I'm packing my grill, I'm packing coolers, I'm getting everything ready. So, anyways, we we make it out to the west side. We're there, we're hanging out, and just randomly after sweating bullets and unloading my truck and getting everything situated on the beach, I checked my phone. And I see Jake Burns and some others talking about just some, some very weird sounding things. Like this is the craziest news I've seen about a quarterback in forever. And so I did the same thing. I started to investigate the blue check marks and I started to look at the Schefter tweets. And then I started to kind of realize that, holy shit, this is real. This is happening. And so I sat down and I uh, looked at my girlfriend. I'm like, sorry, babe, I'm going to be on Twitter for a little bit here. You know, Andrew Luck just retired. And she was like, what? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that's kind of where I was. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think somebody else was mentioning the other day that, uh, Jim Brown also was you know, one of those guys in that same ilk that is going to, you know, kind of retired early. Uh, and we mentioned Barry Sanders we mentioned Calvin Johnson and, and, and there's you know, assuredly others that are out there. Uh, and yeah, this one really just, it, it was, was sad to see. It was sad to see that the news, I, I certainly understand it from the athlete's perspective. Uh, but I think what added, I guess insult to injury, no pun intended, were were the fans and what was going on in the stadium. I mean, I know he was yeah. caught off guard by the announcement. I think it was planned for today, not yesterday. Yeah. But just the way the way those fans handled it was, uh, and then, I know it doesn't speak for all the fans in Indianapolis, but it was disappointing to see that. Uh, just hard to watch. I guess Andrew just be re- reactionary to that, and just you could see kind of how much it uh, it pissed him off. Yeah. So first off, I want to put whoever released that information on blast. How dare you? Like, how dare you steal the moment from Andrew Luck? Here's a guy who has played at some of the highest levels in the NFL over the last couple of years when healthy. And he had this life changing moment that I'm sure took him literally months to wrap his own head around. And all of a sudden you decide that you're going to leak the information to, to Schefter or whomever right in the middle of a game in which he's there, he's surrounded by his teammates. You completely change the narrative from how Andrew Luck would have preferred to let the world know. And you also put those fans in a terrible situation in which they're dealing with the emotion of it in that moment. They're going into a season in which they were Super Bowl contenders. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's a young team with a ton of talent, with a good coach, a good GM that played very, very well last year and was going to hang with the best and the brightest this year. And all of a sudden, as a fan, you're in the moment. You're going from preseason game three, warm up, you think everything's hunky-dory, to all of a sudden everything's in tatters. And you're looking at, you know, a wild card spot if you're lucky. And the, you know, the Vegas line shifted from them being, I don't want to say the overwhelming favorite to win their division, but they, you know, they, they were by far and away amongst a couple really good teams, the prohibitive favorite. And they went from that to, a very deep underdog to even make the playoffs at all. I, th- I saw something like a 37% odds to make the playoffs at all. And that was just the one day swing on those lines. So I guess my point on the fans is I don't hold it too much against them that they had that emotional reaction. Cause I know if I had been in that situation in which my quarterback that's only been around for five, six years and still had the best uh, football to play in front of him 
all of a sudden up and retired. I know I would be incredibly emotionally distraught. I'm not saying that I would boo the person as he's running off the field, but I can understand why you're also putting the fans in a really difficult situation. And I also think that the point of most cities would have those fans is probably an accurate one. Yeah, absolutely. I think context is important here, just like in any, anything that we talk about with football. I mean, we only know so much. And I think if you're a seasoned fan, and I put myself in this position, you know, what if this was five years down the road? What if Baker is everything that we think he is? And what if, you know, he up and retires all of a sudden? I can yeah. understand being pissed. Certainly can. I think with the context of the injury history that Luck had, I mean, what, he had concussions, he had broken ribs, he had... Uh, torn labrum. Uh, I think there are a couple other things that he had as well. I mean, he's been through the ringer and his body's taken a lot. And Yeah, lower leg injuries. Yeah, I think if you just strip all that away, you can sort of get past the emotion of it and try to understand it. But certainly, you know, fans are going to be upset about it. But um, I just wasn't, I wasn't down with the boost. That's all. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from on that. And I 100% agree. It sucks. There's always a a vocal minority of fans that are going to wild out. They're going to ruin those kind of moments. What it seems like to me is that throughout the history of dealing with these injuries, his body's never responded like he'd wanted it to. Like, I, and, and there are lots of NFL players who have had labrum tears and have come back and played. I mean, Drew Brees is obviously one of the most famous, and he had multiple problems in his shoulder, and they said it was kind of a freak that he was able to come back and compete at the level he did for as long as he did. Uh, but nobody expects – a labrum to suddenly be a career ender and he never returned to the kind of form he had before the injury. And he played at a very high level last year. Pro football focus had him as one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the league. But a lot of that was the design of Frank Wright's system and how they changed what they were expecting him to do and, and how he was always known as this, uh, you know, this visceral quarterback who saw the field better than most. He changed who he was as a quarterback. And I think that this most recent round was just, you know, he had a, he had a, what thought what was thought was a high ankle sprain what the team doctors thought was a high ankle sprain and it suddenly turned into a, a whole lower leg injury and he was facing down another year of rehab and his body not responding like he wanted to and i understand when a guy in that kind of situation says i'm just not finding joy in it like i used to absolutely i think this is a an interesting cross section of of i guess my thoughts right now i'm thinking about joe thomas and his post retirement comments about great his parallel. body yeah great and- parallel how much he just hurt every day. He could barely walk. He could barely do anything. Mm-hmm. And you look at him now, the dude is probably, what, 60, 70 pounds lighter? I mean, he looks yeah. like a felt ass-kicking, ass you know, <laughs> machine. And so I think about, you know, the NFL is sort of a meat factory in a sense for the players, they, and they know yeah. it. And, and they, you know, see a lot of the players stepping out yesterday and today in support of him saying, hey, you know what? You know it was your time. You, you did your thing. You made some money. Go enjoy life, man. We can't we can't fault you because we've been through it and we know how much it sucks. And I think in anything in life, once you lose that joy, I mean, just it's time to move on. Yeah. I hear you on that. Uh, and it seems like a lot of joy is being stolen from around the league this year because we're not even at preseason game four and so many uh, critical cogs on teams are already starting to get banged up. I, and I understand that that's probably why you've been shouting, keep these guys in bubble wrap, keep these guys on the sideline. Don't put players that matter in the games. And for the most part, I think that Freddie's done a pretty good job of balancing that, of, of getting guys a couple game time reps, getting guys some work, but not falling prey to wanting to get all of his horses on the field at once and risking injury. And it seems like fingers crossed we're entering into the regular season with most of the team pretty healthy. You know, this was a big challenge, I think, or a big test 
of Freddie to see, okay, rookie head coach expectations. How is he going to handle these, these nuances, these decisions yeah. that, that matter, that, that impact the regular season. I thought he did a great job. Absolutely no need to see OBJ. You know, he kept Najoku very limited, kept Chubb limited, kept Landry limited. I, you know, I think he played the offensive line a little bit more than I would have liked um, on Friday night, but for good reason. I think they need to gel and come together as a unit. But he's done, you know, made, made some good decisions here in the preseason and how to preserve the roster and get us ready for the regular season. Yeah, I actually, I'm full up in on him using the offensive line like he did uh, because I think that there's a lot of question marks. And I think that when you're designing a game plan week one, you have to know what your offensive line is capable of doing and what it's not. And, and the differences in the different guys that they've slotted in at right guard and the reality of who Greg Robinson is and who Chris Hubbard are um, in year two of the system and feeling comfortable and working with new offensive line coach, you have to understand what that group is capable of. For the most part, you right. know what Landry and OBJ are going to do. You know what Nick Chubb is capable of. I wouldn't care to hazard a guess as to whether this line can run block for beans. And I also wouldn't care to hazard a guess without having been in camp every single day, uh, what they're going to need to do for help with those tackles. How much, how much help are these guys going to need and how much of the offense is going to need to look like it did when Freddie Kitchens and Ken Zampezi took over last year in, in, in as much as they designed a, a scheme in which there was quick hits. They got the ball out of guys' hands. There was a lot of swing passes. There was a lot of jet sweeps. The offense was designed to act quickly. And then if that immediate read one or two uh, wasn't w- was covered and wasn't available to immediately roll from there into what the next uh, open receiver or what the next phase of that play design is, and I think they would like to incorporate more of Todd Munkin's play calling in year two, but that's going to require some, some better blocking. Some, yeah, exactly. So, so they're trying to figure out what that balance is. And so I think that you have to play the line a little bit more than you'd probably like to. I especially would have liked to have seen some breaks for guys like uh, Treader, who's been injury prone, guys like Petonio, who's been injury prone. But I get that that's a unit, and they play differently when they're together on the field together. So, so it, it, it doesn't break my heart any. So with that – we have one more big piece of NFL news that I think we would like to talk about here. And that's Duke Johnson in Texas, who is now all of a sudden a bell cow. I think it's interesting based on his usage in Cleveland, whether he's capable of fulfilling that role. And I also think that the draft pick compensation is definitely a little bit um, dicey as a result of him getting more and more snaps. What do you think about uh, the injury to Lamar Miller that, that, that happened last night in preseason three? Certainly a shitty injury for Lamar. In terms of Duke Johnson, he's kind of getting what he's always wanted at this point, right? Yeah. He's wanted to be the bell cow. He's is that wanted- true? Are we, sure, I mean, are we sure that he is a guy that wanted to be the guy, or is he just a guy that wants to be more of a guy fair. that wants to have a better game day role? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, he certainly had lobbied for more snaps here. He wanted to be a more integral part of the offense. And I think that's sort of what I, I meant to allude to is that now he gets to be a very integral part of that Houston offense. The, the problem for us as Browns fans, obviously, is now that pick is a little bit in jeopardy if he gets dinged up or injured, doesn't start as, what, 10 games, then right. we, go, we go down to that uh, fourth-round value instead of the third-round value. So a little bit more risk for us in that, but happy for Duke, happy for you know this opportunity. It'll be interesting to see if Houston tries to go out and grab anybody else or they're just going to ride with Duke. So we'll see what happens with that. I like personally as a Browns fan, I absolutely hate it. I love that he's going to get a chance to shine because I think he's great both as a, a, a pure running back between the tackles type runner and as a pass catching back. I think that he's going to show some versatility in Houston 
that we never got a chance to really see out of him outside of like his first year. But I do think that he has shown a proclivity to get a little dinged up and banged up. And the chances of him escaping a 16 game season with that kind of a heavy workload is going to be really scary and really challenging. And also I hate that um, it's a lose lose situation. Either he plays really, really well there and we have to listen to 16 games worth of kvetching on Twitter about uh, why he wasn't utilized that way in Cleveland, or he comes out and he sucks and he gets hurt. And then, you know, that third round pick turns into a fourth round pick. So it's, it's kind of a lose lose situation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I guess before we turn the, uh, the chapter here on our roadmap for the podcast, I mean, I think, we're only going to be without Kareem Hunt for eight games. Then he's going to come in, and Browns fans are going to forget about this whole Duke Johnson thing. And if you've been paying attention to the running back so far in the preseason, Dearness Johnson is the real deal. And we're going to talk about him later during the stock up uh, portion of the podcast. But the dude is picking up blitzes uh, against Tampa very, very well in pass pro. Did a great job. Should assuage a lot of you know your fears if you had that about that ability or that capability. Uh, can definitely serve that role. Looked a little bit better than Hilliard in that role, actually, in my opinion. And is catching passes out of the backfield just like he did in college, just like he did uh, in Week Two versus the Colts, and continues to surprise. So I think again, when you look at the role that Duke Johnson left, we have plenty of talent to fill that role. We certainly may have liked the player, but I, I don't think, again, the Browns are going to be any worse off for it. I mean, the worse off we can be is a, is a fourth-round pick as opposed to a third. Mike, just at some point in my life, I want to have somebody hype me like you hype third-string running backs because I, we heard about Hilliard for weeks about how amazing this guy was, and even though like he never had an NFL carry, we knew what we liked in preseason and that he was going to be great and that the drop-off from Duke to him was going to be almost non-existent. Now you're telling me – the drop-off from Hilliard to Dernis Johnson is also going to be insignificant? My point that I'm trying to make is the role that we need to fill on this team is not an irreplaceable role. There's lots of guys out there that can step in to that specific role. I, I like Dernis Johnson coming out of school. And, yeah, I mean, Hilliard is also very good. So we, we have two guys that can do that, can, can fulfill that role in the capacity that we needed to. So I'm not worried about that. And I'm just happy to see these guys flashing as opposed to, you know, Carlos Hyde being our third back. And it's like, ugh. So I think that, I think that the Browns are going to have to throw the ball an awful lot this year. I don't think they're going to be able to run block for beans. I think that's what we've learned through four preseason games. And maybe it looks different with scheme and with Nick Chubb out there wearing defenses down and OBJ and Landry keeping them honest. But I think the Browns are going to throw the ball a lot. And if they're going to throw the ball a lot, I want a guy like Darius Johnson out there because that guy catches everything and he has good vision for getting up, upfield quickly after he catches it. So it's not going to break my heart seeing him out there. I think that you and I both agree that, that it's a lock at this point that, that he's going to make the roster. I'd be shocked if he didn't. Uh, and I think he'll probably be just fine. I think you're probably right that it, for a guy that's only going to see 20%, ish of the running back snaps behind Nick Chubb, who they will use as a bell cow. I think that, that he'll be fine. We're going to take a quick break, let our sponsors do their thing. And when we come back, we joined by a special guest who's waiting in the wings. And we'll talk a little bit about preseason game number three. Welcome back. I hope that you uh, chose to stay through the commercials. The SB Nation commercials are corny. They're just like, it's not, <laughs> I guess I could say that on the way out, but like, it's just, it's, you got to wait for me to stop drinking my liquid when you do that. <laughs> it's commercials for other SB Nation shows, and it, they, they put them on repeat. I just like I'm hoping that, and I don't have to hope. I know in our next iteration, as we do sponsorship, as we do advertisements, I want I want to read. I want to I want to do the ads ourselves. 
and and I hope it's for products that uh, have any like even the slightest bit of interesting content to them. So either way, you heard it here. You heard it here first. We're gonna roll from here into talking about preseason game three. Historically, preseason game three is a lot more important, a lot more valuable. It's it's much more of a better look at what your team is gonna be. It's it's what that construct is coming together to be. They'll they'll mix in a little bit more of the uh, pre-stamp motion and the the play calling, and they'll they'll use much uh, many more of the starters. We saw almost none of that. What we saw in preseason game three was a heavily disjointed unit that was kind of trying to figure it out as they go. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. In this era of Browns football, folks are ru- rushing to, to 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 name one or two things, and I think that that's a dangerous idea for preseason game three because I think there were a lot of reasons why the Browns really struggled to get it all going. And who better to talk about execution errors and problems than our own uh, Jared Mueller, who has joined us as a surprise guest for this pod. Jared, kind of walk us through why you think topically the Browns struggled to get it going in preseason game three. I think what was really interesting is just how I, we could have called that game before the game even started. Um, I was hearing from people with the team that said they were lethargic, they were tired, they were kind of worn down, kind of the Indianapolis Colts practices and then scrimmages and and then going into the game was kind of a hype and excitement and it was it was meaningful. And then that game was kind of a letdown. The heat, the travel, all of that kind of stuff. There was just a lot going on there that uh, was kind of signs of a young team that has a lot of developing still to do. Um, learning how to win, learning how to kind of make things kind of X, Y, and Z that we have to do when things matter. Now, hopefully, uh, they also just kind of saw it as a game. They kind of blew it off, and and that's why that happened. But um, there were I, I could have told you that game was going to be ugly about two hours before uh, the first kickoff. It just wasn't a team that was ready to play that day. Um, hopefully, that's that's a preseason issue and not an issue that we have concerns with uh, going into the regular season. Uh, but with a young team, with Freddie Kitchens trying to figure out how he is as a coach, that's something that's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, especially I just kind of did a preview on my podcast of some of the late games when they're going against Miami and Cincinnati and Arizona and Cincinnati, those games are going to feel a lot more like preseason games than they are like regular season games. And so it'll be interesting if the young team and the young coach can really kind of figure all of those things out. So that was really kind of my number one is that was a young team, not really ready, didn't really put it all out on the field. Um, And there hopefully is a lot of uh, butt chewing going on or <laughs> watching tape uh, because there, there's a lot that's deserved. And you even saw Baker kind of getting frustrated, which, which is kind of rare. Um, he, he tends to get more focused, more dedicated to the, the task at hand. And you could see he just seemed to get a little frustrated with his receivers and his offensive line. See, again, that's why I love having you and Mac on the podcast. I know you guys have your own responsibilities, and he's a regular guest on the the Straight Talk OBR podcast, but you guys really have a good grasp of what's going on with this team. You guys always tend to have your finger on the pulse, and you guys are always good guests because of that. Mike, <laughs> you, have, you have something to add to that? Yeah, I mean, besides Jared and Mac being awesome, uh, what I wanted to, to say is what we saw a lot last year is, to Jared's point, you saw Baker, whether he had a, a good or bad first half, go into halftime, refocus, regroup, come out, and then absolutely tear teams up. Whether it was in Denver, you know, he had a bad first half, came out, did better in Houston last year, the same thing, had a horrible first half, came out, did way better. Didn't get to see that in Friday's game because he only played the first half. So I'm not going to pin 
it all on Baker. I, I think Jared made some great points with the young team and, and the, you know, the rookie head coach and how we're going to get guys up for, especially the late games and just the, the, the different things, the traveling, all those things are going to be an interesting uh, component to how we execute this year. But going back and watching the tape, man, Baker missed a couple throws by, you know, less than or about the same size as a beer can. And a lot of, <laughs> A lot of wide receivers drop passes. I mean, it, it, he had a rough night, maybe a little bit on his placement, but his wide receivers, the young wide receivers, the guys vying for the bottom of the roster, didn't help him out very much. The wide receivers in this game letting him down was, was a nice taste for Baker of what it was like to be a Browns quarterback 2017 and, and before because you saw a little bit of that frustration boiling over, and I'm sure that that is something that uh, ghosts of Cleveland quarterbacking past would chime in and say is part of the gig here. Yeah, and I mean, I think the, the really interesting thing is you saw Tampa, they weren't really afraid of any of those receivers beating them deep. There was, they weren't worried about it, so they played really physical. With Jarvis and with OBJ, you really have to worry about that. And so you can't play ultra-physical, you know, be in their chest because they're just going to leave you, whether it's route running with Jarvis or OBJ's overall just amazing skills. With, with the young guys and with, with, you know, Rashard Higgins is great. He's not captain separation. Uh, he's not captain speed. He, he's good overall, but he is not the guy that you're worried about kind of burning you deep on a regular basis. So Tampa really took advantage of that. Hopefully the Browns don't have to worry about those limitations throughout the year. And you also are missing the Joku as well. So, you, you know, there's a lot of those components, those dangerous components that were out of the equation that are going to be accounted for come week one. So, yeah, Tampa was you know able to to tee off on that and take advantage of it. And like you said, Josh Baker got a taste of what it used to be like around here. <laughs> and you know what? I'm not going to take it too seriously because I think that if even half of those egregious drops, I'm not talking about the ones that are going off of fingernails. I'm talking about the egregious drops, third down situations, in the end zone situations. The, the catch that Demetrius Harris should have had in the back end of the end zone is not a – catch that I would expect David Njoku to drop nine out of right. 10 times. These, right. these are balls that, that you would expect your, your TE1 to be able to, to make a play on. If even half of those drops are made, we're, not, we're having a very different conversation today. And that's with an offense that was clearly out of sorts, that was struggling on the offensive line to contain and Sue, that um, was suffering from some, you know, some, some bizarre penalties and some, some misfires. So, Again, it's, it's preseason game three, and I think that Jared hit the nail on the head. I think the team just wasn't its best version of itself. And I think that in the future, we'll see two of those preseason games go away and get replaced by these joint practices because they have a lot more value. The team learned a lot about themselves. They got good work in. They got ready for the regular season this week in Indy in ways that a preseason game prep probably wouldn't afford them. So I, I would expect the NFL to go to a week of televised joint practices and scrimmage type activity for over a preseason game because that's something that they can at least monetize and sell and and get fans hyped for and be able to keep a little bit of the mojo rolling that they, they typically do. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, in the end, it's a team that has to learn from everything right now. And that's really going to be the key is they, Freddie and the staff, really need to teach that team how to learn from every single thing. And so um, actually having that letdown in preseason – probably has a lot more value, uh, even if it frustrated fans and those kind of things. So it's something that the coaching staff has to work on teaching from, and that's something Freddie and that staff has really kind of focused on is not coaching but teaching. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, think, I think their point in, in preseason, Jared, correct me if I'm wrong, but they try to create adversity for the players, and you can only create so much adversity in the preseason practices. 
now in a game, you have a lot of game tape for everybody to absorb that shows them a lot of opportunity to get better. And that, that goes for just about everybody on the roster. But this is the kind of adversity that you want to see. Sure, I mean, it's just the preseason, but it's going to take the guys a little bit to, to get at the, their baseline for the season, especially the offensive line guys. It's going to take them a little bit to, to gel. So this is, this is good adversity. This is good stuff. Yeah, and I think the one thing we saw that we might be actually we're used to with Johnny Manziel and some of those quarterbacks, we saw a few short rolls that really cut the field in half, which normally you do either for offensive line issues or your quarterback, you just need to limit his options so he doesn't screw everything up. We saw that. We don't have to worry about that for Baker Mayfield, but that tells you that they really are starting to worry about the offensive line and it may have to do a little bit more of those short rolls and those boots to protect Baker from the offensive line. It's not a Baker issue. It's a line issue, but that also tends to cut the field in half. And so that limits how many receivers are out in patterns that are useful to Mayfield when he does have to roll out like that to protect him from that old line. Yeah, before we brought you on, I discussed that briefly because Mike was talking about how he was disgruntled with how much actual play the offensive line had on the field. And I understand that sentiment. And I'm with Mike wholeheartedly in keeping your guys in bubble wrap that you need to be critical contributors during the season. But the offensive line was one group that, A, you needed to see more tape on. You needed to know, are we capable of doing these kind of short rolls in the real season? Are we going to have to keep blocking tight ends and running backs in and pass coverage regularly? Or do we have the kind of guys that are going to stand up? They need to get a better feel for what this line as a unit is capable of doing. So I, I, I don't have any qualms with how much they ended up playing. But it is a bad sign that we're trying to figure that out You know, uh, two short weeks before the season actually kicks off. Coach Kitchens actually manufactured some diversity for me in preseason game three. It was, it was really challenging for me to suffer QB two and three in that game for an entire half of football. That was really, really tough to watch. Drew Stanton is not good at playing quarterback in the NFL anymore. I'm, and I'm, I'm saying any more to be light here. I never really enjoyed watching the product in the first place, but holy hell was the second half of that game a real challenge to watch. Why? Was Garrett Gilbert held out for that entire game? That's a great question. I think the, the announcers tried to allude to Freddie keeping the O-line in to protect him because he's so valuable. And I'm thinking to myself, screw that. Gilbert, <laughs> Gilbert's the guy that I want on the roster as the number two quarterback. I mean, I don't, yeah. Stanton is just – he's just a, an abomination of what maybe he used to be. And I don't know what to make of it. I, I certainly hope that he is not the backup going into the season for any reason. I mean, the real question is, have we not seen him even dance? Like, that's what he was best at with the Cardinals was that sideline dancing and running up and down <laughs> for that touchdown. Like, we haven't even gotten that from him. Like, if you're not going to be a good quarterback, at least be interesting, I guess. <laughs> Come on, you know, it, Come it on. Actually speak, it speaks to a broader issue that I've seen a couple people on social media talking about, and that is what do we need from a backup quarterback? What do teams – look for and what should they look for in terms of backup quarterbacks? And this is a broader discussion, but teams tend to go with the Drew Stantons of the world. They tend to go with the Blaine Gabberts. They tend to go with guys that they know their known quantities. Ryan Tannehill is another example of this. You know, they, they want guys with some NFL experience that they can plug in in the event of a catastrophe, but those guys aren't good. And all you're getting from these guys is a, a lack of turnovers. You're, you're throwing guys into the game that aren't going to immediately bork up the game. They're going to keep it conservative. They're going to play within themselves rather than trying to do too much, especially on a short run. But that only really matters for one game. And then once you get into prepping the week afterwards, there's no need for Charlie Whitehurst in the, in the world. There's no need for the Drew Sands. Get somebody that's going to be 
at least a little bit ex- exciting. And then you might find a Nick Mullins. You might even find a Ryan Griffin. And I know we don't want to take too much from a couple preseason games, but Ryan Griffin has shown in a couple preseason games over a couple years that he might have something in the tank, that he might be an interesting Sunday quarterback. And he's limited. Most of these guys are comparatively. But get you a backup quarterback that is at least interesting, that is at least going to make it a game if, you're, if your primary guy gets hurt. And I know it might not take you to the playoffs, but at least it's going to put butts in seats. At least it's going to put an interesting product on the field. Because if Baker Mayfield gets hurt in week three, it's going to be a catastrophe if they have to trust your stand for more than 10 minutes. Well, I mean, it's what they're doing at right guard though, right? Eric Cush is the Drew Stanton. He's not going to make a huge amount of mistakes, but he's got no ceiling. He's got no upside. Whereas Drew Forbes, for example, might just get Baker blown up one or two plays, but probably has a higher upside and more chance of making an impact. And so um, it's interesting for them to play it safe, both kind of at the right guard spot and probably at the backup quarterback spot where Stanton seems locked in. Yeah, I think that the story with Cush, as I've come to understand, is that he's he's a above average pass blocker and a severely below average run blocker. And I think that you'll probably get a much more even baseline with Forbes, even if you played him this year. And I don't think that that baseline is going to be great by any stretch of the imagination. I think he'll make mistakes in both the run game and in the pass blocking game. But I think they looked at it with Cush and just said, look, like we will rest our laurels on our passing game this year anyway we're just going to roll with this and just know that running to the right side is a no-go because Chris Hubbard's not a great run blocker either. So running, running the ball to the right side is going to be kind of a catastrophe this season regardless. And I'm not sure that Drew Forbes would really change the calculus on that one way or another. I, I, we are big fans of Drew Forbes on this podcast. We are, we are big player X fans and we hope that he gets some run at some point. I just don't expect that to be this year. And I think it's probably for the reasons that you're indicating. So I want to go back real quick and answer your question. I'm, I'm thinking about backup quarterbacks, specifically as it pertains to the Browns. And I think you've got to ask yourself, well, how old is your starting quarterback? And what do you want that backup quarterback to actually do for you? Do you want him to be the teacher? And, and you know, that's what Stanton's good at. He's a great clipboard guy. He's a great film guy. But can he actually do it? Okay, if Baker, if your starting quarterback goes down, can the backup quarterback come in and win you a game or two while while that guy gets you know gets healthy again? And Drew Stanton's not going to do that. I don't understand why it has to be one or the other. We saw with RG three and Kirk Cousins in DC, you draft two guys, they're talented, and you can win some games with the young kid behind them. You can develop two guys at the same time. I know that that defies popular NFL wisdom and convention, and that you only have so many resources and so many reps. Right, and I agree. I guess that's my question: is what do the Browns like? What, where are their where are their heads at in terms of that? Because for me, I want Garrett Gilbert on the bench in case Baker goes down because he can come in and he can win you some games and he's going to learn from Baker probably and not yeah. the other way around. So I just don't see any confidence in Drew Stanton being on this roster for any reason. I mean, what value is he going to bring yeah. you when he can't win you a game? He may not make, you know, throw interceptions, but he's not going to win you anything. Just to give you a little piece of information that was in Rumor Central on the OBR, but I've put out there since, um, someone really close to John Dorsey at the Combine made it clear that if Lamar Jackson had dropped into the second round, even after they picked Baker at one, that Lamar Jackson most likely would have been a Cleveland Brown. So they definitely had a lot of interest in in that quarterback position and making sure they had it solid. And so um, they just haven't had an opportunity that they really felt was good enough in that draft that would have made sense at 33 or 35 to go with Lamar Jackson as that 
you know, high, high upside backup quarterback and see what they've got out of him. So they definitely value it. It's interesting. They just haven't had a chance to really get somebody of that ilk or that could be a high upside uh, Kirk Cousins type um, since then. I think we've got to search the Twitter streets for all of the uh, dead bodies that you just produced and saying that Lamar Jackson could have been <laughs> on the Cleveland Browns because I swear that guy is the most hated quarterback on Brown's Twitter. And yeah, I, I, yeah that, you just, you just put some bodies in the street, Jared. Good job. <laughs> it's deeply uncomfortable for a guy that is as fun to watch as Lamar Jackson is. And he's fun to watch that. There's no, you, you honestly do not have the ability if you live in sports Twitter to talk about Lamar Jackson and how funny he is without having 12 Goombas in your mentions shitting all over you because of he's, he doesn't look like a quarterback or he's not enough of a quarterback for them. And that his stats when throwing last year and his flutter balls and blah, 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 blah. Nobody is able to enjoy Lamar Jackson for even a minute. So the revisionist history and retconning that would have had to have happened for guys to, to get behind that pick would have been hilarious. Yeah. No one even seems to want to, recognize the fact that he's dangerous regardless of oh he might get hurt or this and that he's he's going to be a dangerous weapon and brown's twitter better better start to recognize that sure he may not be the prototypical pocket passer but he's going to cause us fits this year and i'm excited to watch those games but also a little bit nervous yeah I'm, i'm also nervous about being in the stands for those games because i saw what happened when the browns came close to winning that game in baltimore last year and I was afraid for my safety. I can't imagine what's going to happen when we, when we lay 14 on them this year. It's going to be ugly. The closing thoughts on, on Garrett Gilbert. You want a guy that isn't going to need a ton of developmental reps because there aren't a lot to go around. You need a guy that isn't going to need all of the resources from, from QB coach to, you know, to, to offensive coordinator. And I think that Garrett Gilbert is that guy because he's played in the AFL because he's been around now for a couple of years. He's been with this team through the entire offseason. He is he's, he's a low-ceiling, high-floor kind of guy. And, and I'd rather have that than a Drew Stanton, who's a low-ceiling, low-floor guy. We're going to do a, a stock-up, stock-down segment. We're going to talk a little bit about preseason game three. I don't think that there was a lot to learn from preseason game three. I think we've talked a lot in general that most of the suppositions that we went into the third preseason game with are still true, and I don't think that – players really jumped out. I think rookies for the most part looked like rookies, probably more in line with what Jared was saying, that they were tired and they were hot and they weren't playing with the the right pieces around them. I think the starters all for the most part looked very good, especially on defense. One guy that I want to start the stock up segment with is uh, Olivier Vernon, who a lot of fans were still kind of lukewarm on after having given up Kevin Zeitler and, and had not seen what he was capable of, and they got a they got a nice dose of it with him and the rest of that defensive line for the first you know quarter and a half. Who else on that defensive line really stood out to you guys? I loved watching Sheldon Richardson. Um, mm. You know, we've been bereft of anyone who is problematic in the past game, um, but just watching some of the games that he played, I'm actually working on a film study part, so it's really helpful. Um, but watching some of the things he did to kind of set up the next moves, and so he beats, you know, he beats his guy for the sack, um, and then he takes his guy into the left or the right tackle to just open everything up for Olivier Vernon. Like that dude is someone you have to think about and you have to be worried about, and 
as a guard, you just got beat or a center, you just got beat. And so now he has all of your attention and all of a sudden he's okay. Sacrificing himself. Like that is a guy that we haven't had. Like Larry Ogunjobi is really, really good, but the way that he does it versus the way Sheldon Richardson does it is, is pretty, pretty different. And so it was just fun to really watch. You know, we, I can't remember a guy, you know, in the last, 20 years really that was destructive from the inside um, and what that does for Garrett and Vernon is just ridiculous my man you you hit the nail on the head and I mean Sheldon Richardson was one of my favorite players coming out uh, that year and he's Can't just confirm. an absolute he, he's just an absolute monster and what he does like you said is he's going to control or demand that you give two guys to him almost every play and then you what you can't give two guys to Garrett you can't give two guys to to Vernon it's it's going to be a nightmare for quarterbacks. And I think it was funny. The announcer said something to the, uh, you know, J- Jameis Winston is running for his life. And I think you can insert any quarterback's name with that <laughs> phrase this year because that's what's going to be happening. Yeah, it's it was it was really fun to, to watch that. And I think another player that, that popped out to me along the defensive line is uh, was Lawrence. And I think yeah, obviously from, from, a, from a depth perspective, he's going to be something that we've, we've kind of missed for, for quite a while. I think he and Coley both had some, some decent reps. Yeah, and Robert Mays wrote a piece on why we should pump the brakes on the Browns season. He wrote it for the ringer. And he said, here are the things that could go wrong. And he had already said, look, like I'm buying what the Browns are selling. I think they're going to be really good. But here are the places in which I think that if it's going to go wrong, this is why it's going to go wrong. And he talked about the defensive line. He said that the front four is a nightmare. It's going to cause nightmare for, nightmares for opposing quarterbacks. And you saw a taste of that in Tampa Bay. You saw what happened when all four of those guys were on the field. It was a bum rush. Um, but I disagree with the pretense that the Browns don't have any depth there. I think that the depth there actually could be better than we've, we've probably ever had in, in post-return Browns uh, roster building. I think that DeVar Lawrence, if he can stay healthy, has been uh, a, a force throughout camp. Mac Robinson had great things to say about him. I've seen Jake Byrne saying good things about him in camp. You have Jannard Avery and Chris Smith rotating both inside and outside uh, in the latter case. And then you know that you can slide Miles Garrett inside occasionally and take some, some reps at three, uh, three tackle and, and play some guys on the edge. So I think that the depth there is a little bit better than they give it credit for. And you have two guys in Christian Kirksey and Joe Schobert, little known facts, have played on the edge in – four, three schemes before they have been dedicated pass rushers, whether in college or in the league. So they aren't uncomfortable rushing the quarterback out of unique splits. So I think that they'll be fine. The defensive line. I just want to add that. I think it was Ken Carmen tweeted out that Doug Deacon has named the defensive line, the four tops, and we absolutely have to squash that. That's terrible. The four tops. The four tops. Horrible. I couldn't believe like, it. Like tops, like you're a top or a bottom, like no, like the old, like the old <laughs> band. <laughs> you freak, like the old, like the, like the old band, the old school band. It's coming from Doug Deacon. So what he's a thinking dumbass it's nickname. That is a terrible nickname. Why? It's horrible. I and, mean, but, it doesn't have to be the Atomic Dogs. I want it to be the Atomic Dogs, but it doesn't have to be. You can do better than four. I've seen a dozen ideas that would be better than the four tops. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it kind of has to be the Atomic Dogs, but the Lakefront, I mean, whatever. That yeah, at least, great. I can Lake deal with Dogs. that, but. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's lots of good names there. Who, what what podcast did I just join for, for a little cameo? What uh, so. Speaking of subs, um, if you want to be an OBR subscriber, no, I'm just messing with you. Uh, <laughs> 
I hope everyone's dialed I, in for the first and the last time Jared Mueller ever joins us for the for sure. <laughs> Little fantasy advice after watching against Tampa Bay, I'm not sure if the Titans should run Derrick Henry 40 or 50 times um, in Week One without Taylor Lewan, but. Good gracious. Yeah, the defensive line was – honestly, I'm going to be more excited about the defensive line than the offense. I know the offense is fun and exciting, but, man, watching watching the Browns destroy people, like control things, be people that you're afraid of, like those all just ring home. Like we've been a part of the AFC North and then the, the Central before that. Like that rings home for Cleveland Browns football. Like we want to destroy people. We want you to be afraid of us. And I think that's actually a little bit more realistic, to be honest. I know jumping from the 26th overall defense to a top 10 unit is, a big, is, is too big of a leap for most people. And I fully respect that and appreciate it. Um, I think that you have an unusual situation in which the team has gotten exponentially better in terms of talent and exponentially better in terms of coaching. And I think that's the only reason why you'd see that kind of a, um, a jump in their overall rating. But I, I really think that especially the, the defensive front, the front seven, Self questions about the people behind them, but I think that that front is going to get a lot of pressure and it's going to be really nasty. And that the coaching emphasis has to be on filling and tackling on quick, de- quick design plays, quick hitting plays, because teams are not going to want to let these guys run amok in the backfield. Jared, thank you very much for joining us. We're going to lose you from uh, this recording. Do you want to give a quick plug about your podcast you have coming up and, and your film study? Sure. Yeah. So um, the podcast is the OBR Straight Talk podcast. Everywhere you're going to find uh, this podcast and all the rest. Um, and then the film study uh, is actually for our subscribers at the OBR. So some of you will see that, some of you won't. But that's at theobr.com. Uh, we're a part of 24-7 Sports and CBS Sports. But um, we'll see you all over the place. I don't think I knew that they were CBS Sports. Did you know that, Mike? I did. I, I did a little bit of a writing stint for them back in the day when I had I a lot more time. Yeah. I remember. Uh, Jared, you're always welcome here. Thanks for the cameo, brother. Covering some stock down, guys. I, I, I hate to immediately get to the bad news once Jared leaves, but the reality is there was a lot of weird stuff going on, especially in the second half of this game. I'm concerned about our tight ends. And yep. I'm, I'm concerned about our tight ends because I really felt like it was going to be a strength of this team. I felt that um, Harris was a guy that they could get the most out of, kind of like they did with Rashad Perriman. I thought that he was a much more reliable second guy behind David Njoku than Darren Fells was, and that was a really rough game for him. And there's nobody else on this roster. They're not playing except the valve as a tight end. They really don't have anybody else. Farrell Brown exists. Didn't get much burn in preseason game three. I think that before the season starts, we're going to see some movement on the depth chart for that one altogether. And I think the idea of them running – a ton of two tight end sets in which the second tight end is doing anything other than just chipping and blocking. It's probably a pipe dream at this point. By my calculation, what I think Harris had uh, a holding, a holding and two drops versus the Colts. He had at least two drops in this last game. He had another holding penalty this game. Yeah. Uh, both of those drops or at least misses were in the end zone. So I think Bad. He, he, he's not Yeah, horrible. Besides Najoku, I agree. I, I was expecting our tight ends to to be a strength. Harris is a lot of what he was before. He's a lot of potential, but he's not putting it together. So certainly a concern, the drops, the penalties. And, and it's not a good thing when Farrell Brown, who's just a, a so-so athlete, is sort of outperforming you in the preseason. It's, it's not a good look for you. So I have a little bit of concern there for sure. I think going down the line a little bit, looking at stock down guys, 
all those wide receivers pretty much except for Higgins really really had a horrible game and you look at guys who are trying to vie for I wouldn't say all of them but Jalen Strong seems to be the guy whose name has been coming up he's finally healthy you know he's he's certainly very athletic had a, a high ceiling coming out was drafted sort of early and now that he's healthy and he's you know kind of made some some big plays in practice you're expecting big things from him with this extra run and he didn't really show that he dropped a lot of passes didn't look crisp maybe it was a, a you know a component of what Jared was mentioning earlier but certainly he was stocked down for me in this game as well yeah big time big time the uh, the depth on the offensive line is is an enormous concern Austin Corbett continues to look lost even against second and third stringers I'm not entirely sure that he's going to make this team I think that we're in that territory where if he makes this team, it will be exclusively on them hoping that he can make some sort of a great offseason leap. Because if he gets into games this year against real defenses, he's going to get murdered and he's going to get somebody else murdered. And I don't think the team has any interest in watching that happen. I think that that is probably the most dis- distressing part of the team's construction going into week one. We've mentioned it on the podcast multiple times, but he seemed to just sort of let that dude roll right past him and, and get the almost sack, the pressure on, yeah. uh, on Stanton or it was Blau, I think at that point, but just didn't really, didn't really care too much. It seemed like, yeah, it was he almost, just, it was out past him. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But he kind of did like the opposite Johnny Manziel thing where I think Johnny was on his back, but he sort of whiffed on it. And then he just like put his head, just put his head <laughs> down on the field. Like, Oh shit. And I just let this guy go right past me. And yeah, he just doesn't really seem to to want to fight for anything along that offensive line in the trenches. So yeah, I just I just keep hearing like sad trombone noises every time I see him on the field because that's it's just <laughs> it's sadness. Stock up. Fucking special teams. Yes. For the F bomb. What a great like through three preseason games, the special teams have been special. They have. They've done what they're supposed to do. They've tackled. Aside from the field goal unit, this last game was 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 great. I mean, Siebert finally made or Seibert finally made his appearance and and hit a rhythm. But yeah. I mean, guys are punting the ball. I mean, Gillen's punting the ball sixty plus yards and then making tackles down the field. Yeah. We're we're just we're great in in and you know in coverage down the field. We're we're making tackles. We're not letting guys get an extra twenty yards. It's it's a breath of fresh air, and it's certainly something to be uh, excited about going into the season. I can't believe that we're going to cut that dude. We're gonna we're gonna cut Jamie Gillian, and he's going to be a punter for the next ten years for somebody. And I know that's bombastic, and he's probably not going to amount to anything because none of these guys really ever do. But he looks great. He is better at punting than Britton Colquitt. He's not as reliable, probably. He's probably not as good at holding. He's probably right. not as good as being an emergency field goal kicker, but he's a really good punter and he's a weapon. And he's going to be a weapon for some team. It's, it's definitely going to be one of those risk reward decisions. And then I think you made a great point. He's probably not going to be on the roster, but I can kind of maybe see him making the roster. He may not be great at pinning the ball down inside the 10 just yet, but you can't teach a guy being able to bomb 60 plus yard punts consistently. And yeah, the last it's, one that he hit that went out, of, it went out of bounds at like the 12. Like he, he bombed yeah. it and it was a corner kick too. Right. And if you actually think of, you know, where, where his punt is leaving from and where it's land, again, every punt is 60 plus yards, 70, 75 yards against the Colts. It's, it's ridiculous. So he's almost, I, we use the term outkick your coverage to describe, you know, when, when you're, <laughs> you're giving the guy, well, when, when you're marrying a woman who's too good looking for you or, in this case, when you actually outkick your coverage, when you kick the ball to where your defenders can't get to the ball carrier in time and, and they give them that cushion, 
but he almost can underkick his coverage and that he has so much hang time when he chooses that the defenders are getting there and just hanging out. And so it's just, I, I, he's, he, he's got the most kicking talent of any punter I've seen in Cleveland outside of Andy Lee um, since the return, but it's, it's, it's gonna, I'm going to be really bummed out if he doesn't make the team and I don't think he's going to. I hear you, man who I am excited about, who is contributing on special teams as well, who I think is a stock-up guy, is Dearness Johnson. Yeah, not only, Johnson. Well, we talked about it earlier, but not only was he doing great in pass pro and, again, catching the ball out of the backfield, which, which you know, again, we expect from him, but he's able to return, return kicks, and that gives him some additional utilization value. And I think he's yeah. a guy that, again, is going to be on the roster, but is able to, to help the special teams unit. So, again, an extra boost for, for those guys and – it's yeah, it's just been a breath of fresh air watching the special teams actually be be good. The um, the Browns punt returning has been atrocious for a decade. Even Jabril Peppers had his moments. He was much better last year than he was the year before that. But it's been it's been terrible for a really long time. So I am here for the RB three on this team, whoever it is, whether it's Hilliard or Johnson, to be the full time kick returner. Just so that you have a guy that is locked into the role that's reliable that is gonna you know not embarrass himself, not create turnovers. So, so I'm, I'm here for him making the team for no other reason than what you're describing. Yeah, I'm here for him as a return man. I'm here for him being a reliable pass blocker, reliable third down pass catching back. One last stock down before we wrap. I want to talk about the guys behind that massive defensive line. I know you're a huge Sheldrick Redline fan. I am not seeing it with the dude. Um, he whiffed on a couple pretty high visibility plays last week. Mac Wilson was caught the last two games uh, a little bit more out of position than we're used to seeing him through the first like week or two of the season. I am really, really grateful that these guys are rookies and that they are not expected to contribute on day one. And I think that that's what the team drafted them in the hopes of being. They'll get a chance to get used to NFL speed, play on specials, and then look at contributing more late in the year or into the next year. I am worried about a career or a season-threatening injury to any of the starters uh, in the linebacking core or in the defensive backfield because that was a rough game for the defensive backfield depth. I think when you look at it, and I looked at it, because I went back and I watched the Red Wine plays specifically, you yeah, know, he, he, did, he did a great job coming down into the box and, and making plays versus the run. He, mm-hmm. he had a couple strong plays there. He obviously missed that, that pass breakup on the crossing pattern from their tight end, gave him an extra 10 yards. I think he got beat in coverage again. So I think that's the, the, the pattern that you're seeing with him is that he's able to come down and make plays athletically in the box, but in coverage, he's struggling as a rookie. And I think yeah. your, your point is spot on. And that goes for Wilson. It goes for Taki Taki. It goes for, for Greedy Williams as well. It goes for Redwine. These guys don't need to be relied upon. And we, we talked about that ad nauseum in the offseason that we're drafting guys to come in and develop. So you want to look for the positives and then build upon – build upon those really and, and try to find out who these players are. So, you know, I really liked what I saw from Philip Gaines. I thought he had a great game. He yeah. had a great pass deflection. So some of the guys, again, in coverage were struggling, but other guys were not. So it's, I still feel confident about the defensive backfield. I think more so than I would about the linebacking core and this crazy idea that some fans have some faction of fans have that they want to ship off, you know, Joe Schobert, who absolutely had a, tremendous game against Tampa Uh, just don't do it just don't even think about it don't talk about it don't don't even wish it upon the Browns defense to get rid of him because those rookies are not ready they may be ready next year but they're not ready this year yeah you're absolutely right and I think that um 
if there is one linebacker that's not going to be around next year, it's probably going to be Christian Kirksey. He's the, the more likely candidate to, to lead this team. Um, sure. Joe Schobert got to show everybody what it looks like when he has a good front four in front of him and a good defensive backfield behind him, and he can just be a linebacker. where He's not expected to cover the, the whole half of the field. Um, and he was, a, he was an absolute monster. And he was a monster for the same reason that guys like Luke Keekley are monsters, because he, he recognizes pre-snap what the team is trying to do, and he doesn't get fooled, and he's where he's supposed to be. And he killed last in this last preseason game as a result of it. Um, I think that the Browns have a lot of uh, soul-searching to do before the season starts. Fortunately for us, we're talking about the bottom 15 20% of the roster. There's going to be some, some guys that are going to get cut that are going to get picked up by other teams. They're going to be on rosters. Um, but I feel good about it. I don't think that any of these rookies are going to be pl- pressed into playing time immediately. I think that the staff knows who they are. I think this team knows who they are. And I think they're ready for week one to get here. And I know I am too. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's amazing how fast the preseason goes by, you know, anticipation all summer long. It just kind of drags on. And yeah. now here we are and we're, we're almost there. And you can just, you can just see two weeks away the start of the season. And I'm excited. Like you said, some soul searching is going to have to happen. Some guys are going to have to figure out, you know, kind of where they stand on this team and they're going to have to, the, the coaches, the coaching staff and Dorsey have a lot of tough decisions ahead. So looking yeah. forward to see how this roster shakes out. It's going to be a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a bloodbath of, of talent that people like. And it's just, it's, there's a lot of good players on this roster and it's just trying to decide the recipe and picking the right ones. is going to be yeah. an interesting component to these next two weeks. Last thing I'd like to see happen, get on the phone with Trent Williams. Get on the phone with Trent Williams' agent. Get on the phone with the Washington Boner Cats. Let's get that guy in camp. Yeah, him or, him or Tunsil. Let's make, yeah. some, let's make some calls and see what we can do. I would love to see either of those two guys uh, get brought in. I know that um, the Browns aren't going to be in the habit of trading that kind of future capital for a guy that they're going to have to pay. But in this case, I'm here for it. Um, yeah, but I think you look at it before we wrap up here. The Browns are most assuredly going to be looking at an offensive tackle next year in the first round. So if, uh, if, you think, if you think that that's what it's going to take to get the team over the edge this year with a guy who's already established as one of the best, then go ahead and spend that capital on it. Yeah, I'm with you 100% on that, and I hope that they do. In the meantime, enjoy preseason game four. Don't expect much from it. We're not really previewing it much because there's much preview. You're going to see second, third string guys. You're going to see if one of these fringe GBs like JT Hassel can make the roster with a really strong preseason game four. See a lot of Braxton Miller. You'll see a lot of these bottom of the roster candidates at wide receiver, Ish Hyman, Derek Willies. Um, And these guys will have a chance to, to once again prove that they belong in that last five or six spot while they wait for Antonio Callaway to come back and they try and figure out whether Damian Ratley is, is going to make this roster this year. So, uh, Hope that you enjoy it. We've enjoyed the preseason slate so far, and we will be back after preseason game four to give you our final look at the roster and to get you ready for the season. Mike, as always, it was a pleasure talking story with you about the Browns. Absolutely, brother. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for the listeners that are out there and look forward to talking to you guys and speaking with you guys on Twitter and go Browns. Hello, I'm Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. 
We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts.